Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by two guests from Darling Macro. Correct. Uh, Mark and Andrew. Um, Mark, maybe if you can kick us off, give us a bit of a background on on who you are. How did you come to be at, at Darling Macro? Thanks, Alex. My first role was way back 30 years ago, and it was a role working at National Australia Bank. And it was a fantastic opportunity to learn the nuts and bolts of how a retail bank worked. But I had itchy feet and uh, I went to the UK and explored a whole series of roles, which were, again, a lot about rolling up your sleeves and understanding the machinations of credit and market risk with inside the kind of the world's premier investment banks. And it was um, at times humbling and at times a dirty job, but it was was fascinating um, through the early and late 90s. But I'd always had an interest in being a little less transactional, a little bit more um, sort of longer horizon investing. And I ultimately got a chance in the late 90s to work and start the credit investing business of AMP Capital. And uh, we started one of the first credit funds that invested in mortgage-backed securities and corporate bonds and hybrids and private debt and had a had a fantastic 20-year career there. And fast-forwarding and right through to today, you know, the last four years, building Darling Macro and trying to apply much of what I've learned but not everything in, in, in a business and focusing on uh, alternatives. Andrew, let's switch to you. Yeah, I guess my career has been typically transactional. I started as a foreign exchange dealer in the 1980s, not long after Paul Keating had floated the Aussie dollar. And I've traded through a lot of different market cycles and I've traded through a lot of different markets. And one of the things that uh, kept me going in the market for so long is that I've always been interested in what comes next rather than what came before. And I've jumped into products where other people weren't necessarily at the same level of uh, sophistication as they would come to be in a few years. One of my more satisfying roles was in my second stint at Westpac, taking on the credit portfolio immediately post the GFC. And the credit portfolio I'm talking about is the actual balance sheet of Westpac. That was a, a great trading role, but it also really made me think about how capital is used and about how different mandates actually drive behaviours. I went back to Deutsche Bank, had two stints at uh, Deutsche and at Westpac, and was working in the structured markets business at Deutsche. And again, noticing how it had been really hammered home that mandate drives an enormous amount of behaviour. And that was always a little bit frustrating. When I left Deutsche, Mark and I were having a chat and I realised that the things that were being done in the alternative space were actually in some ways trying to break down some of the traditional barriers to efficient market risk allocation. And uh, that really was um, an easy decision for me to come and uh, join Darling Macro and start thinking about what I consider more rational way of deploying your risk capital. It's interesting, both of you come from a, a bit of a trading background as well. I'll switch to you, Mark, in, in terms of 
when you think about wealth management, wealth generation for people, how do you think that your mindset has changed around taking macroeconomic risk factors, taking your experience in sort of understanding how the machinations of a, of a market work in terms of then building portfolios for investors? Yeah, I mean, we uh, spent substantially 20 years on, on gathering data, macro data, to be able to build portfolios, to be able to generate uh, an inside into, into the prices of those markets and the direction of those markets. And as Andrew said, looking forward. And But at the same time, we also recognised um, the sort of the behavioural aspects of markets, how other investors um, reacted to data or reacted to their informational set. And uh, what we found over time was actually the, probably the sort of the optimal investment strategy really combined to those two things, the behaviour and also the f- some fundamental and informational advantages. I think, you know, what we think is probably over the 20 years, the informational advantages that investors have in the macro markets have declined and your ability to get an advantage is reduced. I I think in other markets, smaller markets, small, small cap stocks or iron ore markets, there is still informational advantage. So we, fast forward to today, we've really just streamlined our thinking in our processes to to put aside the informational advantages and really focus on the behavioural insights and the behavioural errors that investors are collectively making. You know, I think as individuals, we all make them, but it's the collective errors that investors make, which we focus on. And then we really try to avoid making our own through um, systematising the process. I'm curious, maybe Andrew, switch to you around the the idea of risk, the definition of risk. Obviously, being a trader, you actually experience risk in, in a much more closer way. You know, how does that sort of play into the portfolio construction? You know, we've got a lot of typical ways of, of measuring risk. We've got different ratios and, and looking at sort of sharp ratios, for example, to try and look at the optimal amount of risk to have. But how do you actually implement that? Yeah, well, look, I think as a guy who's come out of an investment banking background, I'm always a bit wary about kind of imposing what's obviously my own biases and backgrounds onto the onto the rest of the market. But one thing that I think is really clear is that historically, we haven't really thought about our own balance sheet as investors. I think we thought, hey, you know, we're going to accrue some money and we're going to work for a while and hopefully our super fund will do well for us. But at the end of the day, it's actually our balance sheet that's at risk. And when you've worked in a bank, they give you access to balance sheet and they say, here is some balance sheet and here is how we measure the risk you're going to take and we'd like you to optimise that. And so you immediately come from a slightly different approach in terms of generating return. You're always actually thinking about your return as as it relates to the capital that you've been given and it's a risk-adjusted return. And I think we really kind of understand when we've come from that sort of background that there is an ability to generate a portfolio optimised outcome that focuses on the risk that you're taking and maximises the return you're getting for the risk you're prepared to take. Now, you might have a fund who is growing at 50% a year because they make fantastic bets. But I I struggle with that as a long-term investing concept because it feels to me like the risk-adjusted return, it may need more than a 50% annual. So we try and think about things from a a really kind of devolved basis where we're not really so thoughtful about, I want to be in this or that product. We think about, well, what are the characteristics of this or that product? 
how much exposure should we have to it on a risk-adjusted basis? And guess what? If we can measure that it's becoming riskier, should we have less in it? And one thing we know about traditional investing is if you give money to a venture capital person, they're going to be either invested in cash or venture capital. Our idea is that we're going to invest in the things, as Mark said, 20 years of research, now four years of track, have told us actually generate the right returns that we're after given the risk we're prepared to accept. I'm curious, maybe, maybe Mark, if you can sort of like lift us, you know, lift up the hood around, you know, how do you think about the portfolio, particularly as the traditional you know, mean variance approach to portfolio construction looks at covariance, correlation, and you're trying to build this portfolio, but you know, how much does that really represent the reality, right? It's a, it's a statistical tool that we can use to build portfolios, but really does it capture what we want to do as we think about the, the SAA, the you know, the strategic as allocation of the fund. You know, how, how do you sort of blend that up approach with you know, the live trading of, of a portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's still relevant. Mean variance is still relevant. But, you know, the assumptions that are used for a strategic asset allocation are only, uh, you know, right for period of the time. And, uh, you know, for if you're setting a five or a seven-year horizon, what you're really trying to make an assumption on is what, what's going to be right on average over that period. You're very interested on where, on the end point, you're very interested on where the portfolio arrives in, in five or seven years. Our focus is recognising that those assumptions for a lot of the paths that you could possibly take between now and then, those paths vary. There, there are multiple paths and um, it doesn't go in a straight line. And what we're really trying to capture is how that covariance matrix and all those volatilities in the marketplace vary through time and to what extent are those variations able to be anticipated. So in, in some ways, we're trying to predict risk rather than predict return. And uh, that can be powerful because it might allow us to take advantage of the current conditions in market rather than just relying on the average, reasonable average assumptions over seven years. So you might, in an SAA, be actually able to generate much more diversification if you had different assumptions um, that we would use in the short run. It's interesting. It's a, it's a real challenge. And I'm curious to get in, to then get your thoughts around as you look at the current market conditions and really volatility seems very much suppressed because of the central bank influence in, in across many asset classes. And then ultimately then historical asset classes that should have played a defensive role maybe don't do that in the current arrangement. So how do you sort of almost think about the current conditions and then the potential loss of defensiveness in some of these asset classes? Yeah, it's going to be a challenge, that's for sure. I mean, I think, you know, you were talking before about a definition of risk and, you know, there is no perfect definition of risk. We use one that then allows us to compare opportunities across a broad universe of bonds, equities, commodities and currencies. And it allows us to do that, you know, with some consistency. So it becomes important really for two reasons. One, from a portfolio construction perspective, you know, comparing all of those different opportunities. But two, it does allow us to manage the experience that an investor has through the volatility of the fund. And because I think if we ask investors how they feel about risk, you know, volatility is one of the things that they feel. Um, they also have an emotional response to investments which feel risky. So the volatility is 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 relevant. Yeah, there's no doubt that with cash and bonds, you know, yielding 
you know, sub-inflation and central banks, you know, pretty determined to shift employment, you know, to full employment. You know, rates uh, are not going to be as effective. And, uh, you know, I think what we're particularly thinking about is the kind of inflation shock scenario that is is being debated. Bonds have been less effective uh, over the last number of years in dealing with the growth shock, particularly uh, European and Japanese sovereign bonds. The treasuries have still been effective. So what are going to be the new tools for dealing with this? One of the ones that we've been testing is volatility. And, you know, you alluded to realised volatility as being low. There is quite a gap between realised volatility and implied volatility. But we think, and we've done some testing on this, that, you know, volatility is going to be an important way of protecting portfolios. And then Australian dollar has been a reliable diversifier as well that, you know, most investors use to invest in foreign currency. So when you specifically you're talking about volatility, it's looking from a pickup in volatility, almost a, a long vol strategy. Almost a long vol strategy. I mean, it's, um, as we know, to be long vol is costly. It's extremely costly. Another example of that is to be in cash and just waiting for an opportunity when assets are cheaper is extremely costly. To be long vol may cost you know a handful of percentage points per year might be equivalent to the upside you had hoped for from equities. So the key is it's got to be able to be turned on and off um, or at least shades of grey. You need to be able to monetize protection. And I think, you know, there's an incredibly difficult emotional aspect of, of increasing protection and then monetizing it and going back into the risky asset. And I've always thought it's an incredible skill to be able to sell, but also buy in stress. And so in March, the, the investors that were reducing their defensive assets and buying March 2020 and were reducing their defensive assets and going back into growth assets, that was one skill. But were they also able to have reduced when they first saw the signs of coronavirus in January? Two different skill sets, hard to get in one person, which is probably why either a system or a diversified team of voices is important. Andrew, I ask you the question really around how do you then think about defensive assets in this type of environment and really the role that sort of Mark's just touched on, that the need to be almost very active in how you think about defense in a portfolio and, and trying to find diversification. How do you go about that process? I think the issue of defence is a good question to start with. I mean, why do we need any defensive assets? Mark alluded to the fact that assets don't act on average every day like they do in the long or medium term. Now, if you can close your eyes and just wake up in five or ten years' time, you don't need any defensive assets because you're just going to assume that markets are going to behave in their long-term average. The reason why we have defensive assets is all those things that Mark just talked to which is that we feel that there are opportunities that we can monetize when markets go down in March 2020. If you were able to liquidate something that hadn't gone down as much as equities, you could be buying equities 20 or 25% cheaper than you would have been buying them in January. And that's an absolute advantage to your portfolio. Now, identifying how you do that and what assets are going to be defensive is the tricky one because, as Mark also said, if you're going to sit long of cash or buy a bunch of equity puts, you're locking in some negative returns. So defence has to be something which has got the characteristics that allow you to do what you want to do, which is find your rebalancing points in the cycle 
And there's probably only one every seven to 10 years where you want to be able to do that. But you also don't want to be baking in reductions in your portfolio targets in the off chance that that seven or 10 year event you recognise and you exploit. So I think you need to find things that have got characteristics that last over time. And I think particularly at the moment, fixed income is a tricky one. We're all being used to good returns out of fixed income. Fed funds rate were, was as high as 20% in 1981, dropped to effectively zero in t- uh, 2020. That massive bull run for bonds is unlikely to come back. So we don't think that fixed income as an asset allocation of itself is necessarily going to give you that uh, offset that you used to get from a defensive asset. But by the same token, when the central bank tells you they're not moving interest rates for another, let's call it 18 months, you don't want to give away the opportunity of of picking that carry up as well. So I think we look at that market in particular as being a market where you have to be quite nimble because from time to time, you're going to be able to get some great carry out of fixed income. And that defensive characteristic will work for you You need actually techniques to be able to move your defensive around, in my view. I think some of the other ways of being defensive are to own assets that are unlikely to have market variation. And that means that when you have hiccups, you're not getting too perturbed about it. But what that comes with is a a necessarily lower amount of liquidity. So you tend to find that, for example, non-investment grade lending situations are relatively harder to get out of if you wanted to make a switch into the equity market. And I think in 2020, we did see some funds finding that they had to put exit fees onto people because they were looking to manage the uh, the sell down of assets in, in order to um, give liquidity that people thought that they needed. So I think you need a mix in the defensive space of things that aren't going to be heavily influenced by market pricing but you also need access to things that have liquidity and have some of those old characteristics of being negatively correlated. That's not an easy thing to do. It's interesting. You know, Mark touched on the the issue about long vol and, and the cost that comes alongside it. Andrew, I wanted to just continue with you around some of the other alternatives that are in that space or within that umbrella, which is trend following, relative value. There's also other sorts of other alternative uh, strategies, long short, for example, that are often used as this defensive piece. I'm just curious around your thoughts on on those as potential defensive aspects of a portfolio. I think that um, one of the things that disappointed some people in 2020 was that things that were explained to them as having low market beaters actually ended up having quite high market beaters. I think, you know, some of the things that you've talked to when you deconstruct what their returns look like at the time they didn't give you the sort of market neutrality that the, that perhaps was on the outside of the tin. What was inside of the tin wasn't the same. I think that there's no doubt that many, many strategies using effectively uh, either a long momentum and a short value or short value, long momentum, but either way, there is a large amount of market beta around the momentum side of that. So anytime you've got a long short where there's momentum on one side and value on the other, you're going to have market beta. So I think the key is actually really understanding what it is you're getting out of that structure. It really understand that the all conditions are going to make your portfolio 
influence the same way. And and it's just simply not going to be that case. So I don't think there's an easy answer to what is a defensive asset, but I'm not sure that some of the things that people have thought of as defensive assets actually meet all the characteristics that you might write down in a textbook of what a, what a defensive asset should be. It's quite nuanced and that's that's difficult because we we as as people and as investors, we kind of like to compartmentalise things, which is probably one of the reasons why sleeve-based investing has been the most commonly used because it's very hard to do what someone like the Future Fund does, which is be relatively product neutral and take each individual investment on its own characteristics rather than making it conform to a particular definition of what sort of asset type it is. That's a great place, uh, I think, Mark, for you to give a bit of context around how do you guys think about asset sleeves versus a traditional asset allocation that most of us would know from a standard, even super fund, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think even the process of SAAs and, and the allocation then of the capital following those SAAs gives you a bit of an insight into the problem in our, in our mind is that once those SAAs have been determined, capital is allocated to specialists in those areas and then they're given specialist benchmarks. And the evidence is that, you know, taken collectively, those strategies don't add value versus benchmarks. So you've got a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of fees being allocated, you know, a large part of the portfolio, which is not adding value. But the, the other difficulty is, and I've seen this firsthand, is how do you get ideas across the portfolio from equities or from bonds or from other asset classes actually informing each other? How can you, because all of these asset classes are operating in the same global economy, the same global markets, but how can you get ideas working across the portfolio? And what I've observed firsthand is that the language, um, the way risk is measured across those sleeves and the different languages and the different terminologies, the different horizons means often insights from different parts of the portfolio are not able to be translated into other parts. And, and what tends to happen is investors go back into their sleeve and just try to beat the benchmark. And, and most of the, a lot of the industry is, is set up that way. And if you looked at the results and saw that the results were, you know, significantly ahead of benchmark and not a zero-sum game, then that might be okay. But we think there's a, you know, terrific a tremendous loss of information because all that money's locked in locked in those sleeves. I'm curious then in terms of what role do a lot of these e-liquid uh, options that are coming up, private markets is it's such a you know, key part of a lot of the superannuation funds uh, as a way to dampen volatility because the prices aren't discoverable uh, as often uh, and, a, and a way to sort of lock in capital and hopefully get an extra premium associated with it. How do you think about illiquid assets as, as part of your portfolio or the role that they could play or, or don't play? I see illiquid assets being pretty consistent with an SAA. It's just the, you know, the short run pricing, as you alluded to, is, is, is going to be less volatile and it's going to look like it's you know, particularly diversifying. But actually, the allocation to private markets, it's a long-term allocation. There isn't an ability to come in and come out of that. So it's quite consistent with the SAA way of thinking. Our approach is to, as I said before, recognise these different paths. To be able to dynamically manage risk between the sleeves, take account of different correlations, take account of different volatilities, the instruments that you need to use need to be the most liquid global instruments at very low cost. So the ability to do that, you have a much greater 
uh, ability to turn the portfolio over without without high transaction costs. So we use the global futures markets, Alex, and e-liquidity doesn't play a role in our portfolio, but I think it's absolutely valid in the context of a total portfolio. It does play a role, and particularly where it's lined up with the horizon of the investor. If it's not lined up with the horizon of the investor, then you have the situation that Andrew alluded to, which I think is a bad wealth management outcome where investors lose confidence in investment and they don't see it through to its finalisation. You know, they, they, they want to withdraw and they want to re- redeem and they're doing it for a range of reasons. And, and I think you mentioned at one point the sort of our view of wealth management and I think it's trying to align, you know, money-weighted and time-weighted outcomes. And I think, you know, in some ways that's the holy grail that if, uh, you know, if, invest, if investors' money-weighted outcomes are the same as time-weighted, then they've seen through um, the investment opportunity to its conclusion. I think that uh, we've all been quite used to returns that have been, you know, relatively positive across all of our asset allocations with obvious notable exceptions in, you know, GFC and then the, the down in, in March of 2020. I'm not sure that we've been through phases where people have understood that there might be extended periods of time where certain parts of your portfolio below your target or either negative, but they've enabled other parts of your portfolio to make gains that you would have perhaps felt were a, a too risky eggs in one basket concept if you didn't have those offsetting assets. Now, because historically we haven't seen extended periods where assets have stayed at, at disappointing levels for long periods of time, I don't think we've developed, a, 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 as Mark said, a total portfolio view where you can actually take the concept that, you know, an illiquid asset is a seven to 10-year horizon. And that's why you do need to have things in your portfolio. And I guess why Darling Macro has been designed the way it is. Because what Darling Macro gives you is access to very, very liquid markets, which allows you actually to complete on your strategic investment in the illiquid market at times where you do feel that there are things that you need to do in terms of reallocation or for that matter, just in terms of having having money for other things outside of your investment universe. So I think if you overweight the illiquids to the point where you've lost your flexibility, I think there is a potential that people are going to uh, get, and, and, and as, as we've said earlier, the worst outcome of all, which is an unexpected return or an unexpected characteristic. So I think you need to be very mindful that, that a defensive asset class which is illiquid, is going to fall down on one of the very key things that people say that they're interested in, which is that uh, capacity to have liquidity. So you need to you need to do it in a sensible way aligned with some other assets that are highly liquid. Mark, is it fair to say that really what you're doing in terms of the construction portfolio, almost a, a type of risk parity strategy as you think about different assets to, to build in? Risk parity. There's some similar principles, that's for sure, in the way we, with the way we measure risk and the way we think about it in the portfolio. But there are a couple of sort of fundamental differences in that risk parity probably doesn't take account of correlations exactly the same way we do, or a little bit more dynamic in the way we think about correlations. And also, risk parity, or the classic version of it, assumes that all four of those economic scenarios are essentially equally probable. Whereas we think from you know, an ongoing basis, some of those scenarios can be discounted as being less likely. And therefore, 
the portfolio you would need for that scenario can be, you know, downweighted. It's a little bit like coming back to the long vol strategy we were talking about. There will be times when um, your signals might indicate you don't need that long vol to the same degree. You can turn it off. You can save some premium, which is necessary. Um, so there's some ways in which we're different from risk parity. Some similar principles, we're probably a bit of a blend of risk parity and trend. Risk parity gives the exposure to the markets, the participation in the markets, the kind of portfolio construction, efficiency, particular way of viewing risk. And then the trend allows us to switch on and switch off and gives us exposure to a kind of a divergent type exposure. And, and the way I think about divergence is that you know, it's, the, it's really being long the possibility that markets do things that are less expected and that the tails are a little bit fatter than we all think. And uh, I sort of tend to think there are sort of two ways of, of looking at the world. You, you talked before about relative value. I think relative value as a strategy is, um, you know, it's more akin to sort of value. It's convergent. It's that the world is going to continue to be, you know, a more normal place over time. And uh, it's quite susceptible and quite fragile to volatility because it's, uh, you know, it's assuming that two things, two assets of, of possibly different risk are going to converge over time. We found relative value, you know, does give exposure to quite big drawdowns, typically, but not always, whereas, whereas trend is a complement to that. And, and sort of coming back to the point I was making before about illiquid assets and, and our strategy or strategic and, and, and dynamic, these, the, the key to, you know, I think a great portfolio is actually not excluding things, particular things, but working out how they can complement each other. So relative value being a complement to trend um, and strategic being a complement to dynamic. Mm-hmm. Andrew, Mark had mentioned a little bit earlier about the the power of the Australian dollar as a, as a hedge as well, but you know versus the US. Another key area that a lot of a lot of investors are looking at is gold and other commodities. Curious to get your thoughts on how do you think about uh, commodities and gold, particularly playing that defensive role. I think that the idea of what is a defensive asset is caught up in really the way that you look at it. And a lot of people look at gold in a way that is very different from somebody who is more focused on a cash generating kind of situation. You know, it's hard to think of somebody who's invested in a toll road as being equally keen to diversify into gold because they're they're fundamentally at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The toll road's never going to go up in value um, because it suddenly became, I don't know, shiny. So gold has a real role for people because they do get a a strong sense of solidity from it, which is in some ways dissociated from what its fundamental behaviour is, whereas a currency like the Aussie US has exhibited specific hedgeable kinds of qualities when historically the markets have become more volatile because there has been a perception that has played out in the currency markets time and time again. But of course, the interesting thing is that that relativity is now changed. Australia is now a current account surplus economy. It's really interesting to think about the way that those historical relationships that have been very, very helpful in portfolios may actually manifest incredibly differently in the future because the landscape's changed. And going back to gold, really, when it comes down to it, Bitcoin's become the gold of Gen X. So does gold begin to 
be less allocated towards from the weight of money coming in from younger investors who actually say, well, I don't really get gold, but I get Bitcoin. I think the key point of all of these is if you measure all of your asset allocation choices on backward-looking measures, and that's what a sharp ratio is, you know, it's a, it's a, an average over many years of empirical data. You can fall into the trap of missing out on the fact that there's been some fundamental changes. And I kind of like the idea of observing market volatility and momentum current time to look at the things that are working under those sets of parameters. Now, gold may well still be a fantastic asset for the foreseeable future. Bitcoin's obviously had its, you know, massive extension. It's come back a long, long way. But, um, you know, I think there's still a lot of true believers in Bitcoin. The Aussie US is going to be a really interesting thing to watch it play out as Aussie goes to a strongly current account positive country from years and years of being the other way around. For me, it feels like you can't compartmentalise anything as having X or Y characteristic because, for me, we are actually in a new normal. We are actually finding the different things that are going to affect us into the future. And we talked at some length already about the fact that, given interest rates where they are, the interplay between rates, valuations in the equity market, and the defensive capability of a fixed income portfolio are all somewhat up in the air. I think that, you know, that that's again what attracts me to the to the idea of using volatility and current momentum as good indicators, because it doesn't necessarily rely on relationships that are fundamentally not the same markets that we saw those relationships being, you know, written about and put to textbooks. Well, Mark, final question, and it sort of comes back from some of Andrew's comments, which is really the power of narratives, right? He talked about gold and, and Bitcoin and, and the confidence and things. So I'm, you know, given your experience, what role do narratives play in, in really driving markets today? I think they do play a large role. I, I, you know, I think any one single individual finds it difficult to assimilate a huge amount of data, and 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 it's why we, you know, use machines to to assimilate that data. Then. If you sort of think about collections of people, I think we collectively can't think um, in society about multiple themes and multiple regimes. And so we tend to have to, you know, work it down to a, a smaller group of narratives. And then I think we like to think about having explanations for things. So we tend to use the same narrative to explain um, what's happening in a particular market because we only had a few that we were able to remember. And so. My feeling is narratives do play a role. They, they're a shortcut for the way we think about trying to explain things. They're, they're, uh, they're a way of aggregating our understanding about global economy and global markets, which are incredibly complicated, incredibly complex. And my feeling is looking out into the future, they're, they're going to continue to exist and probably strengthen. You know, I think, you know, the empowered investor, the empowered self-advised investor, I think is a trend of the future and, um, you know, narratives are going to, you know, form a part of the way they view the world for some time to come. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time, uh, both Andrew and Mark. Thank you for joining us. 
All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.